That's what I plan to do at the end of this hour when my friend Charles Blow returns to the last word to discuss what the Georgia election results for president and the Senate tell us about the power of black voters in the 21st century. And this is not an angle you have heard before. This is Charles Blow's view that you haven't heard from anyone else. And as we said last night, and as Rachel's focus of her show last night and this show last night showed, I repeat, this is the year of the Senate. And so our first guest tonight will be a member of the Senate who will be in the thick of all of the action, including the cabinet confirmation votes, followed by the vote in the Senate impeachment trial of Donald Trump, and a year of crucially important votes on legislation where much of the Biden-Harris agenda might depend on squeaking through the Senate by a one-vote majority, with the deciding tie-breaking vote being cast repeatedly by the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. Senator Richard Blumenthal, along with six other senators, has already done something historic this year when he signed a complaint to the Senate Ethics Committee requesting an investigation of Senators Hawley and Cruz for their connection to the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th. Wow. Now, senators do not do that. I know of no other case of senators filing an ethics complaint against another senator. Senator Blumenthal has done that. And that already makes this year, unlike any other year we have ever seen in the Senate. The Senate will deal with three things simultaneously. Now, I'm in Passion never fails. For me, my goal was to find a career that I am passionate about. And I can honestly say I found... Nominations. We're working to confirm more nominees this week. A fair impeachment trial and delivering emergency COVID relief. We want to work with our Republican colleagues to advance this legislation in a bipartisan way, but the work must move forward, preferably with our Republican colleagues, but without them if we must. Time is of the essence to address this crisis. We're keeping all options open on the table, including using budget reconciliation. The first step to pursuing COVID relief legislation through reconciliation would be to pass a budget resolution. And so, in keeping our options open on our caucus call today, I inform senators to be prepared that a vote on a budget resolution could come as early as next week. Budget reconcili er, reconciliation legislation can pass the Senate with a simple majority of 51 votes. It does not face a 60-vote procedural threshold that other legislation faces. Many of you already know that, and you've known it since the Democrats used it to pass, pass Obamacare through budget reconciliation. But this year, you're going to have to learn a lot more to keep up with what's actually happening in the Senate, including budget points of order and today a rare constitutional point of order was raised on the Senate floor. In a 50-50 Senate, every Senate rule is being studied every day by both sides in the Senate to try to find a parliamentary advantage. And you're gonna, you are going to have to learn the difference between voting on a motion to table, as happened today, and voting on the actual issue 
that is being tabled. And understanding of that changes completely your understanding of the way news is reported about Senate votes. We'll get to that in a moment with Senator Blumenthal. Chuck Schumer and the Democrats are promising to use budget reconciliation in ways that we have never seen before. For example, to raise the minimum wage, which has never been attempted in a budget reconciliation bill because budget rules strictly limit the content of that kind of legislation. President Joe Biden is not waiting for any extra funding from Congress to increase the vaccination rate in the United States. We will increase overall weekly vaccination distributions of states, tribes, and territories from 8.6 million doses to a minimum of 10 million doses. Starting next week, that's an increase of 1.4 million doses per week. And we believe that we'll soon be able to confirm the purchase of an additional 100 million doses for each of the two FDA-authorized vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. That's 100 million more doses of Pfizer and 100 million more doses of Moderna. 200 million more doses than the federal government had previously secured, not in hand yet, but ordered. We expect these additional 200 million doses to be delivered this summer. And some of it will come as early, begin to come in early summer, but by the, mid, by the mid-summer that this vaccine will be there. Today, Vice President Kamala Harris received her second dose of the coronavirus vaccine. I want to urge everyone to take the vaccine when it is your turn. It is really pretty painless, and it will save your life. So thanks to all we're doing this great and important work. Let's make sure everyone gets a vaccine. On behalf of President Biden and myself, I thank you for everything you do every day. And the bottom line is that we're going to get 100 million vaccinations in 100 days. And then we're going to continue to do what is necessary to improve the health and well-being of our country. Today, the most senior Democratic senator, Patrick Leahy of Vermont, administered the oath to all senators for the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Do you solemnly swear that all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, former president of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help you God. Ooh, he say, so help you, God. <laughs> Later in the day, Senator Leahy was taken from his office to a Washington hospital when he wasn't feeling well. His staff said his move to a hospital was taken out of an abundance of caution. Senator Leahy has returned home and is, quote, looking forward to getting back to work. Senator Leahy is two years older than the junior senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders. Senator Leahy is 80, Bernie Sanders 78. Wow. Senator Rand Paul raised a constitutional point of order against holding the impeachment trial because Donald Trump is no longer president. Five Republican senators joined with all of the Democrats to defeat that point of order, 55 to 45. And leading off our discussion tonight, Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he served five terms as Connecticut's Attorney General. Senator Blumenthal, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And I want to begin with that vote that we saw 
on the Senate floor uh, today because it's not necessarily as it appears to be for people. Uh, what happened was Senator Paul introduced this point of order and then uh, Senator Schumer raised a motion to table it, which is to say, just to put it aside. And what you voted for was to put it aside. And that's what 55 senators voted for. It was a, it was a vote to not debate it and not consider it at this time. Uh, and so it wasn't an actual vote on the essence of it, which is the constitutionality question. Uh, and that's something that's going to be considered in the impeachment trial itself, isn't it? Absolutely correct, Lawrence. Uh, the vote today was a kind of technical rehearsal, and it perhaps was a reflection of how senators would vote on that constitutional issue and on the merits of the impeachment trial. But what really I saw as I looked across the chamber was for profiles and courage and for senators who would stand up and speak out and say we should proceed with this trial after an armed insurrection that was designed to stop counting votes and in fact assassinate members of Congress and the vice president yes, and unfortunately only four to five of my Republican colleagues were willing to take that stance. So it's a technical issue that was in the point of order, but I think it is a reflection of the silence and spinelessness that we've seen over the last four years. Well, just to work through for the audience what would have happened if uh, the motion to table did not succeed, we then would have had on the Senate floor a debate about this constitutionality, and then there would have been a vote on the constitutionality. And uh, one Republican, for example, Rob Portman, has definitely opened the door to the possibility of finding that it in, is in fact constitutional, even though uh, he didn't vote to table today. His statement is very important. He said, uh, this is a serious constitutional question, and I today voted for allowing debate on this issue and against tabling this important discussion. As the trial moves forward, I will listen to the evidence presented by both sides and then make a judgment based on the Constitution and what I believe is in the best interest of the country. And so, Senator Blumenthal, there's Senator Portman saying, look, don't misinterpret today. Uh, my vote as a vote on how, how I will vote in the final verdict here. And that is an important point, Lawrence, because it gives me hope and it, it bolsters our argument that we should proceed to trial, that we should hear all the evidence and all the legal arguments at the same time. The constitutional argument that somehow Donald Trump can't be convicted simply because he's no longer in office is flat out wrong on common sense, on a plain reading of the Constitution, on the assessment of remedies. He can still be barred from future office. It is plainly wrong. And that will be debated and I think defeated during the course of this trial. Uh, we were joined last night by former Republican Senator uh, Jack Danforth of Missouri. Uh, he has said that the biggest mistake of his life was endorsing uh, Josh Hawley for Senate, and, and in, including uh, endorsing him for uh, Attorney General in the state. He, he regrets supporting his political career at all. I, Senator, I have not been able to find another instance of a senator filing an ethics complaint against another senator until you 
and six Democratic colleagues did that uh, against Senator Cruz and Senator Hawley. That was a, a very big step to make. How did you make that decision? We thought long and hard about it and really searched our souls and minds about how we felt about that attack on the Capitol, which was so repugnant and horrible, uh, horrifying and horrible. And literally, they crossed the line. It, it was not about rhetoric or debate on the floor of the Senate. They lent legitimacy in an environment of violence to lies from the President of the United States that brought a mob to the Capitol and led to injuries and death. They amplified that kind of falsehood after the assault on the Capitol. And they raised funds from it. They may have helped in other ways. So this effort may be unprecedented, but I think it's justified under these extraordinary circumstances. And at the same time, it doesn't preclude our working with other Republicans. We want to work with them, but we also need to take action. The American people need and deserve strong, robust action to deal with the crisis, we face, and we need to take it. Senator Richard Blumenthal, thank you very much for starting off our discussion tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Joining our discussion now, John Heilman, MSNBC National Affairs Analyst, host and executive producer of Showtime's The Circus, and this week, most importantly, host of the Hell and High Water podcast from The Recount, where I am caught uh, you know, sharing some private thoughts on a podcast. And uh, John, you got more biographical information about me from Kurt Anderson on this podcast than I'm comfortable with, so uh, don't, don't tell anyone where to listen to it. This, uh, John, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, for, yeah, hey, Lawrence. Lawrence, you guys are both brilliant, and people need to know. Kurt, Kurt and, and you and Lawrence have been friends for 46 years, I learned, and uh, it's the first time they've been interviewed together. Two brilliant guys saying brilliant things, but with not nearly enough profanity. That was my only disappointment in the podcast, but you, you got to hear it. Very good. Thank hey, you for doing uh, it. Uh, uh, John, uh, this year of the Senate is going is, to be unlike anything we've ever seen in so many ways. And one example of this is the way the Democrats, Chuck Schumer especially, are very confidently talking about using the budget reconciliation process for things like raising the minimum wage. Now, there has never been a theory that you could do that within the reconciliation rules, which leads me to wonder if they are considering actually waiving those rules, using Kamala Harris's role uh, as the final judge of what actually is appropriate on the Senate floor, simply, in some instances, possibly ignoring the parliamentarian's advice and simply saying, you know, that's okay. You can stick the minimum wage in here, even though you never could before this year. Yeah, Lawrence, you have obviously forgotten more about Senate procedure than uh, I will ever know. But what's, what strikes me on the basis of a lot of reporting over these last few weeks, talking to a lot of senators, uh, and particularly Democratic senators, is that they're considering everything, Lawrence. And, and I think that it's important, that's important in this sense, that the, the, I think they believe that 
that so much has changed from the last time we had a 50-50 Senate in 2001-2002 when Tom Daschle, for the Democrats, the minority then in the 50-50 in the Senate, and, and Trent Lott, the, the majority leader, were able to work in a spirit of relatively constructive, uh, quite constructive, uh, conciliatory, kind of pragmatic partnership to, to run the Senate. So much has changed in these twin, those 20 years, Lawrence, and I think the main thing for a lot of Democrats is that their view is that the filibuster has been so badly abused that we are now in a world where uh, it, it, that, that, that the, the fundamental abuse of that of that procedural uh, that that procedure historically out of precedent uh, has made uh, Democrats sort of say, well, given that level of abuse and given what that has done to our politics, what it's done to our ability or our, our inability to legislate, they're willing to basically sort of say, we, we must consider things that have never been considered before, and we must be willing to go outside, to color outside the lines if we're going to get stuff done on the scale that is required by, the, the, as what Joe Biden called, the four cascading crises that we face right now. I don't think anything's off the table right now for the Democrats in this context. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the news reporting is that there are, are two Democrats, uh, Joe Manchin and Senator Sinema, who are opposed to changing the filibuster for the next two years for this Congress. What's so striking about that, and I know there's a lot of people who voted for a Democratic Senate who are disappointed by that, but it used to be dozens of them were opposed to it, and then it used to be one dozen were opposed to it, and, and now it's down to two. This is moving in one direction. Yes, I think inexorably, Lawrence, and, I, and I'd say, you know, it would be a fascinating thing if the, if the president, the new Democratic president, was in a slightly different position. I mean, the reality is that, and this is another thing that I think will disappoint a lot of Democrats, is that if you, if you asked Joe Biden, particularly if you had him under sodium pentothal and asked him what his view was, he would be with Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. He doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster either. That's not to say that he would not contemplate it, and certainly he understands that the threat of taking it away is an important tactical, uh, uh, important tactical tool. That, that Chuck Schumer needs to use, but it is. But what Joe Biden would prefer is to keep the filibuster where it is now. And, and I think you know that that it is it is absolutely the case that we are. It is headed in one direction, and that there will not be support if we can, especially if we continue to see what we've seen. I, I I think not just within our lifetimes, Lawrence, but you know within this decade, there will be zero support on the Democratic side for maintaining the filibuster. I think it's inevitable that it will go away. Uh, the only question is just how fast we get there. John Howland, whose podcast is, for reasons I still don't understand, called Hell in High Water. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, John. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you. And coming up, while, while Vladimir Putin is trying to cr crack down on dissent and protests that have erupted across Russia, he got a call today from the President of the United States, who did more in one phone call with Vladimir Putin than the previous president did in four years. Ben Rhodes joins us next. Everything that the last president did not say to Vladimir Putin because he was afraid of Vladimir Putin and because he didn't care about these things was said today by President Biden in one phone call. Here's something you haven't seen in, say, four years. It's a thorough readout of President Biden's call with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. And it is a joy to read because it so clearly depicts the return of professionalism and responsibility to the presidency, especially in dealing with Vladimir Putin. 
I have never before read a detail, detailed readout of a president's call with a foreign, lead, foreign head of state on this program. But this one is a thing of beauty. And after the last four years, with each line of it solidly hammering home how much has changed since 12 noon on January 20th. And so here is my personal favorite readout of a presidential phone call ever. President Joseph R. Biden Jr. spoke today with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. They discussed both countries' willingness to extend new START for five years, agreeing to have their teams work urgently to complete the extension by February 5th. They also agreed to explore strategic stability discussions on a range of arms control and emerging security issues. President Biden reaffirmed the United States' firm support for Ukraine's sovereignty. He also raised other matters of concern, including the solar winds hack, reports of Russia placing bounties on United States soldiers in Afghanistan, oh. interference in the 2020 United States election, and the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. President Biden made clear that the United States will act firmly in defense of its national interests in response to actions by Russia that harm us or our allies. The two presidents agreed to maintain transparent and consistent communication going forward. Joining us now wow. is Ben Rhodes, who served as Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. He is an MSNBC political analyst. And Ben, I was thinking of you today when I was reading that readout, thinking of all the times you wrote readouts like that uh, for people to try to explain what's really going on in international relations like this. Uh, new start for five years, agreeing to have their teams work urgently to complete the extension by February 5th. They also agreed to explore strategic stability discussions on a range of arms control and emerging security issues. President Biden reaffirmed the United States' firm support for Ukraine's sovereignty. He also raised other matters of concern, including the solar winds hack, reports of Russia placing bounties on United States soldiers in Afghanistan, interference in the 2020 United States election, and the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. President Biden made clear that the United States will act firmly in defense of its national interests in response to actions by Russia or to defend against Russian disinformation. So it's really a new day, not just for the U.S. president, but again, for that, that concept of the democratic nations of the world standing together against a dictator like Putin. Uh, ben, for the previous president, we used to often learn about these things because Russia reported it publicly before the White House did, and then the White House would kind of grudgingly add something to it. Uh, today, the Russian readout of the same phone call did not dispute anything uh, in the White House readout. It was vaguer, and so that's kind of a return to form where the White House readout is specific, clear, forceful. The Russian readout is vague on the same call. Yeah, look, the Russian readouts are always trying to convey a sense that this is business as usual, that essentially uh, they're just moving forward with their agenda and they'll work with the United States on certain things. Uh, but you saw the Russians shape the perception of their relationship with President Trump for the last four years um, and really playing into the anxieties in Europe and other parts of the world that the United States was no longer reliable. Uh, whether or not we would even keep our commitments to the defense of our allies was thrown into question in part by the way that the Russians were able to constantly characterize their interactions. The reality now is, look, one phone call is not going to solve everything. 
I've been on a lot of phone calls with Vladimir Putin where he just lies. So I'm sure he probably lied and said that they didn't poison Alexei Navalny or they weren't responsible for the solar winds hack. But the reality is Putin is now on defense for the first time in a long time on several fronts. He's got a mass movement, not just in Moscow, but across that country in support of Alexei Navalny. He has a U.S. president who's once again willing to stand up to his behavior and can work with Europe to try to either impose consequences or to express solidarity uh, for people like Navalny. So the, the world has changed for Putin. Uh, you know, the, the momentum he had on uh, the 2016 election has clearly come to an end, and he's in a new reality here, as we all are. Ben Rhodes, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Arnst. Thank you. And when we come back, President Biden signed a series of executive actions today aimed at advancing racial equality. Freshman Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman called the actions a big step, but he hopes to work with the president to... Well, there is some good news there. I know it was lengthy. But, um, it's time to get some stuff done. And what I'm seeing is, it's time for them senators to get off their butt and really get to work. They mean, playing around, playing patty cake, thinking they in control. We're not in control, baby. Y'all work for the people. Work for the people of the United States. Never forget it. Never forget it. He called the actions a big step, but he hopes to work with the president to do more. Congressman Bowman joins us after this break. Those uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds that took George Floyd's life opened the eyes of millions of Americans and millions of people around all over the world. It was the knee on the neck of justice, and it wouldn't be forgotten. It stirred the conscience and uh, tens of millions of Americans. And in my view, it marked a turning point in this country's attitude toward racial justice. Moments after saying that today, President Biden signed an executive order prohibiting the renewal of federal contra contracts with private prisons. He signed Ooh, wow. an order to the Department of Housing and Urban Development to, quote, implement the Fair Housing Act's requirements that HUD administer its programs in a manner that affirmatively furthers fair housing, including by preventing practices with an unjustified discriminatory effect. President Biden also signed a memorandum to all departments and agencies designed to improve the federal government's relationship with tribal governments. And the president signed another memorandum, quote, condemning and combating racism, xenophobia, and intolerance against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the United States. That memo, memo directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to develop, quote, best practices for advancing cultural competency, language access, and sensitivity toward Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the context of the federal government's COVID-19 response. The Bachelor wow. is back. 
Stream it live on ABC with YouTube TV. Before signing those documents, the president said this. We've never fully lived up to the founding principles of this nation, state the obvious, that all people are created equal and have a right to be treated equally throughout their lives. And it's time to act now. Joining us now, Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York. He is a freshman congressman, and this is tonight's Meet the Freshman segment. Congressman Bowman, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, as someone who grew up in public housing, I first of all want to get your reaction to what uh, Joe Biden uh, said to the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development today to get in there and comb out any possible discriminatory practices, especially after the four years of the way the previous administration has been handling that department it's a breath of fresh air let me let me say that to begin with i mean to hear joe biden uh, president biden center racial justice and racial equity it's a breath of fresh air and it's very exciting uh to hear him speak that way and i commend uh, his, executive, his, his executive order today related to HUD and the four executive orders that he signed. I mean, we have to understand that the federal government has been disinvesting from public housing for the last 30 years, and the federal government hasn't given a dime to public housing over the last 10 years. We have to preserve our public housing. We need to keep it affordable. We need to keep it public. We need to keep it available as a public good. And I worry that private interests are getting too involved in our housing across the country, looking at housing as a commodity. And that's why so many people are housing insecure, especially during the age of COVID. So we have to do more. This is a good first step. But we got to understand this is historical. There's a reason why communities of concentrated poverty are mostly black and Latino, while the suburbs uh, and wealthy areas are mostly white. This has been by political design and by policy. So we have to right those wrongs as well. Congressman Bowman, uh, we've had a lot of reporting about the difficulty to get vaccine around the country in different places, but we know that uh, the public housing in America is always, wherever it is, kind of a city within the city. It, it is a separate place that is often not reached by all sorts of public policy. Uh, what can you tell us about what's happening in the delivery of vaccine in public housing in your district in New York City? Well, number one, we don't have enough. Um, New York State is receiving 300,000 vaccines uh, a week. That is not nearly enough for a state as large as New York. So we need more vaccinations, number one. Number two, we need to make sure those vaccines are getting to communities that are most vulnerable. As you mentioned, our public housing. Uh, to quote the great poet Nazir Jones, uh, public housing is like being stuck in the ghetto without exits. And we have environmental injustice taking place there. People living too closely together because of the neglect. We have rodents and, and roach infestation. So people are really suffering. So we really should be targeting public housing uh, as the center of vaccine distri distribution. But we need more vaccines. The Trump administration failed in that regard. And I'm hoping and, and prayful that the Biden administration will do a lot more to increase vaccines across the country. I want to get your reaction to uh, one of the president's orders today, uh, this to the Justice Department saying, <clears throat> do not renew 
any more contracts for private prisons in the federal system. That got a big reaction when the president did that today. So bravo once again, uh, President Biden. Uh, again, this was a huge step. Uh, no one should be profiting off of the pain and abuse that's taken place uh, in our criminal justice system. But again, it's a first step. We have to do a lot more in terms of criminal justice reform and police reform. We need to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We need to end qualified immunity. We need to legalize marijuana and cash bail and solitary confinement and look for alternatives to incarceration. We have so many people in prisons right now because of drug offenses or be, because they were addicted to a substance uh, that doesn't deserve prison. That deserves treatment. So we need alternatives uh, so that we can reform our entire uh, prison industrial complex. But today, absolutely. Uh, dealing away uh, with private prisons. We also now have to deal with the for-profit motive that exists within our federal uh, prisons and jails because for-profit motives continue to exist there as well. So we have to do more. Congressman Jamal Bowman, uh, you joined us as a candidate. This is your first time here as a member of Congress. Great to have you here. Please come back as often as you can. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. And coming up, tonight's episode of Never Forget. Trump associates have already begun their rehabilitation tours, hoping we forget what they said and what they did. We'll show you why you should never forget. Next. Time for tonight's episode of Never Forget. The rehabilitation tours of Trump associates have already begun, and we should never forget some of the things they did and didn't do and some of the things they said and didn't say. And the first stop on her rehabilitation tour on Sunday, Dr. Deborah Burks said this about Donald Trump's understanding of the coronavirus pandemic. Quote, I think the president appreciated the gravity in March. In March, okay, the month after March, on April 23rd, Donald Trump said the most memorable thing he has ever said about COVID-19. And then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute, and is there a way we can do something like that? Uh, <laughs> injection inside or... or Almost a plane. It was serious. It gets in the lungs and it does a tremendous number of lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that. So that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. And so we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's uh, that's pretty powerful. Wow. Dr. Burks didn't warn anyone not to drink or inject disinfectant. Here is more of what Dr. Burks said on Sunday. I saw the president presenting graphs that I never made. So I know that someone or someone out there or someone inside was creating a parallel set of data and graphics that were shown to the president. I know what I sent up and I know that what was in his hands was different from that. You can't do that. She never said to Donald Trump, you can't do that. Right. 
Dr. Birch said Donald Trump appreciated the gravity of the situation in March. Here's what Donald Trump said in the last week of March. So I think Easter Sunday and you'll have packed churches all over our country. <laughs> the day after Donald Trump said that, the day after he foolishly and recklessly suggested that we would have packed churches across the country on Easter Sunday, the day after he said that, the day after, Dr. Deborah Burks actually said this about Donald Trump, a man who famously does not read. He's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. And I think his, his ability to analyze and integrate data that comes out of his long history in business has really been a real benefit during these discussions about medical issues. Because in the end, data is data, and he understands the importance of the granularity. Never forget. After this break, Charles Blow will join us with an idea that he calls, quote, the most audacious power play by black America in the history of the country. Charles Blow is next. For our next guest, author and New York Times columnist Charles Blow, Georgia is proof of concept. I don't know about you, but I'm so proud Georgia is the most competitive battleground state in the United States. You did that. You did that. Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which you are about to enter, so help you God? I do. Congratulations. Under the previous order, the leadership time is reserved. Join us now, Charles Blow, New York Times op-ed columnist and author of the new book, The, the Devil, Devil You know, know, A Black Power Manifesto. Charles, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. So why is, why is Georgia proof of concept, the concept described in your book? All right, so the concept is very simple. At the end of the Civil War, three southern states were majority black. Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina. Another three were within four percentage points of being majority black. The only reason that those states were not, did not maintain that majority black status is because black people were terrorized out of that space uh, by white terrorists, right? Uh, there was a push, there, that was what was called the Great Migration. There was a push-pull to the Great Migration. The pull was that there was more op economic opportunity in the North, uh, there was more opportunity for civic engagement, but the push was terror. What Georgia showed us is what a reverse migration can mean for black power and the reestablishment of uh, larger percentages of black people in Southern states. Uh, Georgia, those two senators from Georgia are the first senators in American history where the black people made up a majority of the coalition that to put them into office. And it was also the uh, first time, at least since Reconstruction, the, the majority of the coalition that delivered a state for a presidential candidate were black. 
That's what power looks like. That's the power of the reverse migration. Because the last time that Georgia went for a Democratic candidate was 1992. And in 1992, only 25% of the population of Georgia was black. This year, 33% of the population of Georgia was black. The black population of Georgia doubled from 1990 to 2020. So on the one hand, you had amazing organizing by a bunch of groups, including Stacey Abrams, who is a superwoman. But on the other hand, they had more bodies to organize. And that becomes a proven concept of what returning to the South, establishing black power in states where you're already a large percentage of the population, changes the political dynamic of America completely. If, if the great migration had never happened, black people could control up to 14 cities today. If it had never happened, black people could control or be the controlling interest in more electoral college votes in California and New York State combined. If they voted the way they vote now over those years, you would not have had a, a, a Republican president for the last 50 years. And the entire Supreme Court would look different. Mm. You say that entire Supreme Court. I don't know what happened there, you guys. They cut that off, so I'm going to find the complete uh, video on that. But congratulations and clap and, and, and go ahead, black voters. See, your vote matters. To the point, look what happened. You got out and you did the thing. The minorities, you did the thing. Even the white folks, y'all wanted a change. Y'all did the darn thing. And congratulations. Now, it don't stop here. It don't stop here. You have to get involved in your community, in your city. Okay, go to that city hall website in your state and for your city, even in the small communities. Find out what's going on in the area and get involved. You have a right. It's time for us to get off our butt and stop being lazy and always having dispute and conversations behind a football game playing a video game, girls night out, boys night out. No, 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 no. It's time when you get together, start asking each other questions. Help each other to be mindful of their part to play in their community, in the earth, in the power that they have. Our vote is powerful, y'all. That's your voice. And you should feel pretty good if you went out there and did your democracy duties and voted okay things have to change they have to change it's you know i was my my friend always laugh at me because i always tell her when i wake up i'm like oh i'm still here lord when you gonna take me okay so what you have me to do since i'm still here you know and yeah it's rough it looks rough but we got a ways to go because Elohim don't want no one to perish. He don't want nobody to perish. And so that's why all this being stirred up. He's stirring the nest, y'all. At every angle, every political leader, every uh, hierarchy in, in the religious set, ministers and pastors and bishops and apostles, you're not getting away from it. He's shaking it up. You talking about a great awakening? Oh, yeah. It's being awakened, all right. But what are we going to do? What are you going to do? 
if I'm playing my part over here and you playing your part over there and taking a stand, we can make a difference. And if you don't want to do it for yourself, the things that I'm pushing myself to do, even in the midst of all the the the, <laughs> the adversities that come my way, I'm not doing this for me. I'm setting this up for my children's children. I look at him every day. I look at my grandson every day and see how he's growing. My other grandchildren, how they just growing and being in in um in in coupled with the the various changes that is happening right before our eyes. And sorry, some of them can't keep up. Some can and some can't. So what part are you going to play in your family life? All right? So we can begin to network within each other, even within your family. I know they're going to have something that's going to pull away, but then the majority rule and just keep on going. We do it every Sunday. We did it, and I have to commend on our next family call. I have to commend my family. I, I am so elated that we committed to at least coming together for at least 30 minutes every week on a Sunday evening just to do a, 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 a wellness check. And we found out a lot of things, a lot of, I mean, a lot of stuff happened within those four months. But now, and we got something done. We was able to complete our will. Now, the next thing, we had to make sure our will and make sure everybody had their insurance. You know, we not just on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it do turn out to be like a girl thing about the hair and, you know. Yeah, of course. Of course. Of course that's going to happen like that. But overall, we targeted conversation. We gave each other a deadline and we did it. Now we are moving towards business. That's going to be our next thing. Everybody, what kind of business you're doing, where you need help at, da-da-da, da-da-da. And we have started that at the end of last year, but by me talking about it, we're going to make it more strategic, at least by the end of this first quarter of the year. You know, we're going to start seeing some individuals doing some awesome things. Okay, you guys? So I just want to share that and... Um, that's good. We're starting to see some change, some some validity happening in our country. So at least America won't be looking like a laughing stock anymore. Because I mean, they was really like setting up and just just imagine the allies and the enemies. Man, they was like, whoa, they're not even together. Come on, we can go and invade. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that uh, President Trump knew the seriousness of what happened on January 6th to literally see something like that, which it didn't surprise me because, hey, you know, hey, they, they, it was, they was fighting within themselves. They was fighting within themselves and it was trying to overturn uh, a power play, and that was black votes. That's all it was about. You go check out the stats. You go check out the demographics. You go check it out yourself. That's all it was about. Trying to silence the black 
voters did not want to accept what the black folks did. Not no people of color, women of color. I am so tired. It's like that is all over now. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We are identified. We have a a a, a status. Don't don't couple us as a woman of color. I am a black woman. Okay? Matter of fact, a Native American. A native individual. You know, now I'm understanding, you know, um, in the old days, they don't just, they don't, they never introduce themselves as black, white, Asian. Excuse me. It was always, my name is Danya Irvin. I am the daughter of James Irvin, partners of the region of da, da, da. That's how they identified themselves. And you know who they were. So, okay, you guys. I'm going to let y'all roll. I know y'all ain't heard from me in a while, but that's how it is. And we we going to the top. Don't forget, Elohim is first, though. You know, he's shaking all this up. And we must understand, too, that we in the world, but we're not of it. Be mindful of what's going on, but don't get caught up in it. Get get caught up in that word, cause the get, the kingdoms of our the kingdoms of this world will be soon the kingdoms of our God. And yeah, the internet may be the principality of the air, technology, music. He may think he had one in all those areas, and he's just laid back, just chilling like McLittin. But soon and very soon. Yahweh is coming. <laughs> oh, yes. And the thing is, will you be ready? Not the Congress, not the President, not the Senate, not the Governor, not the Mayor, not the Police Chief, not even your Mama or your Daddy, but you. Will you be ready? That's the question you should ask yourself. When you take all those elements out of the equation, and it's just you again, not even a husband, not even a wife, not even the children, it's just you. Will you be ready to stand before Yahshua when your time expire? Just something to think about. Later.